Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. Let's go to another cult situation, <laughs> shall we? Yeah, yeah. This is not going to be a light season. It was going to end light. And then I started doing the research for this episode and I was like, oh, this needs to be a two-parter. So we're just going to be heavy to the end. A lot of ground to be, cover. Yeah, it's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. Buckle up. So, so where are we headed this episode? This episode, we're headed to Japan, and we're going to be talking about the Om Shinrikyo cult that was responsible for the 1995 sarin gas attacks on the Tokyo subway. But there is a lot to cover before 1995. Where do we begin? Well, we begin with the charismatic leader, who does not seem charismatic at all. Like, as much as Jim Jones was like to me pretty obviously a dickhead this guy i'm just like why (laughs) but you know we get people how did he get people following him (laughs) yeah teach their own i guess but so the leader of om shinrikyo was a man named chizuo matsumoto who was born on japan's southern island kyushu and i'm just gonna like right up front i've never studied japanese i'm gonna do my best with these japanese names but I am not good at Japanese, and I can admit that and be okay with myself about that. So, anyhow. All you can do is try your best, (laughs) and we know you do. Thanks. (laughs) So, Chizuo was the fourth son of a tatami weaver. So, those are, like, mats, special mats. And Mm -hmm. both Chizuo and one of his older brothers were born blind. Chizuo was completely blind in his left eye and partially blind in his right eye, while his brother was just totally blind. Both boys were sent to a boarding school for the blind where Chizuo was able to use his partial sightedness to his advantage in order to bully other children as he had been bullied back in his old school. And this is just... Turnabout's fair play, I guess. Yeah, but he kind of took it, like, a little too far. Too far. (laughs) He actually ran for student body president in elementary school, junior high, and high school and never won. And he was just, like confused he was totally dismayed and he asked a classmate why he never won and she told him because everyone's afraid of you like (laughs) yeah off to a great start (laughs) yeah he was good at math he got a black belt in judo but i wouldn't say that he was like good in school he actually threatened to shoot a teacher and then he set fire to a dorm room on a separate occasion And he also pulled some sort of scam on his classmates that got him $3,000 by the end of high school. So he was just, I don't know where this came from. I don't know where this aggression came from. Maybe like having been bullied, but again, like it's kind of a overreaction. Yeah. And like when you're scamming people, like that's a whole different kind of game. Yeah. Yeah. And people get bullied all the time and they don't like turn into assholes, you know, like. Yeah, totally. So... But he wanted money, he wanted power, and he was, like, kind of dead set on getting both. 
But, you know, as is common with assholes who don't care about people, he didn't have, like, great foresight in order to attain either of these things. Like, he wanted to get into a Tokyo university, or he wanted to get into Tokyo University, the the Tokyo Mm. University, which is an elite university. And he figured that was his next step on his way to becoming prime minister, which was his whole goal. Because things have gone so well so far for his small-time elected (laughs) office, so. Right, right. Dream big, (laughs) Chizuo. He was dreaming big. He was like, money, power, yes. But it's also like, nobody wants you to even be the president at your school, dude. But Yeah. But, you know, shockingly. Deluded. (laughs) He didn't make it to Tokyo University because he failed the entrance exam. And in his anger at, like, finding out he had failed this exam, he assaulted another employee at the massage parlor where he worked. Yikes. Yeah. So he's just going full aggro at this point. Like, Yeah. Not making good decisions, not caring about people, like not having outlets for his anger. For all of these big feelings. Yeah, big feelings. <laughs> like I can understand having big feelings about not getting into the university you wanted, but assault, mm-hmm. maybe not the best course of action. Right. I don't know. There. There has to have been something about him. Like, he has to have had some sort of charm about him because he he became a cult leader. But before that, he met a girl named Tomoko and married her in January of 1978. So, like, someone was interested in him. Okay. And six months after their marriage, the first of their six children was born. So, like... So, she was sticking around for... Yeah. Yeah. She was a very active member in the cult later on actually okay but so you know i would say that <laughs> i would say that chizmo maybe got more out of this marriage than she did like maybe she got the power of being like the cult leader's wife and also her family had money so the money that he like wanted in life he got from her yeah. like she doesn't seem got like she an, got in ticket to easy street this way yeah yeah and so he used her money and he was able to open his first business was with, which was the Matsumoto Acupuncture Clinic. And Grifter's gonna grift, and Matsumoto grifted with this clinic because he didn't know he didn't know how to be a businessman. He didn't know how to be like legitimate in any way. And so he offered acupuncture, sure, as would be expected. And you know, he had yoga classes, fine. But he also sold herbal cures, like the Almighty Medicine, which was just tangerine peel and alcohol solution. Almighty tangerine power. <laughs> but he charged $7,000 for three months of treatment at his clinic. And he didn't just sell quack cures to people, but he also put on a doctor's coat and went out and sought out people to scam at the elite hotels in Tokyo. Like, it's almost like Fight Club style, what he was doing. Like, going out, finding rich people. And I mean, at least in Fight Club, they were making actual products. He just has alcohol with tangerine in it like yeah well and i mean and it's it's almost i mean his greed's definitely showing because if he's getting seven thousand dollars for three months at his clinic like that's not that's not anything to you know shake a stick at but he's gonna go ahead and say no i need to seek out even more people to Mm -hmm. scam exactly yeah 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 he definitely i mean he he's goal driven we could say (laughs) He is, like, but he's so short-sighted. 
1982, Matsumoto was arrested for practicing pharmacy without a license and was fined $1,000. It was nothing compared to the $200,000 he had managed to steal from people. And these people, you know, they were trying to cure their, like, rheumatism and other, like, fairly serious ailments. And he just gets a slap on the wrist with this, like, $1,000 fine. Yeah, Um, that's nothing. And he was able to continue with the clinic even. Like, they didn't shut him down. He just, like... Well, that doesn't to... make any fucking sense. Right. Yeah. He just had to <laughs> like, pivot his Pay scams, this fine, but... and then he can just go on like it's another Tuesday. Yeah, exactly. But so he was like, okay, okay, okay. I won't, I won't do the pharmacy thing. Fine, whatever. I will tell fortunes using geomancy. And then, mm. like read auras and he he told people that he could perceive evil auras so he was like going in more of the like nice. woo woo direction which like yeah i don't know like at least you're not gonna like poison Hurt. anyone no just, and like, he's not, not no it's not but i mean at least he's not falsely trick tricking people like tricking people into thinking they're getting a cure for some you know right healthy ailment like yeah, I mean, I think it's a step in the right direction, but he wouldn't have made that choice had he have not gotten caught. Exactly, exactly. And then, much like Jim Jones, Matsumoto started looking for a religion that he could use to align himself with in order to better convince people to join him or believe his claims, you know, whatever he was doing. And the timing was unfortunately very good for him because, like, Kind of all religions in Japan were, like, going through some stuff at the time. And that is to say that religions in Japan had been going through stuff for a while, but they weren't, like, getting better or more ordered by the 1980s. Like, it was just getting, like, it was just getting kind of weirder and weirder every Mm -hmm. year. So, mid-19th century, state Shintoism had emerged, wherein the emperor himself was an actual deity, And while there were other, quote, new religions that were followed at this same time and into the 1940s, state Shinto was hostile to them and actively worked to destroy the people in places of worship because it was the state. Mm -hmm. Buddhism had been a dominant religion, but it couldn't exist with Shintoism, like, you know, with with the state people. They were like, we're not going to have any of this Buddhism. It's Shintoism or nothing, essentially. Okay. But state Shintoism took a big blow following the United States bombing of Japan during World War II, and it dismantled their religion because the emperor had to admit that he was not a deity. Like, I am actually fallible. I couldn't prevent this shit from happening. Imagine that. Yeah. And so new, new religions began to pop up. And these were influenced by established religions like Christianity, but also had more, like, eclectic foci, like religions which centered around people claiming to be reincarnations of Socrates and Henry Ford. It was just kind of a free-for-all. Like, all over the, yeah, all yeah. over the place. Like I Seeing said. Seeing what sticks. They were going through some stuff. <laughs> and so by these standards, when you have all these new, new religions popping up, the the stuff that Matsumoto was bringing to the table seemed more reasonable. And even when it became more established and it was later called Om Shinrikyo, they were still more reasonable because, you know, they were at least, you know, associating themselves with Buddhism to start. They were very focused on yoga. Later, there would be some principles of Christianity. But it's all like, you know, it's not like you're 
worshiping cats or like Henry Ford. Something or super off the wall, right? Yeah, yeah. It's still stuff. It's within people... the realm of of reason. Yes. Like, yes. So before he got going, and when he was just starting to try to determine what sort of theology he was going to push, he was interested in the new new religion, Agonshu, which was a cult established in 1969. They demanded strict adherence to Buddhist principles, but had a TV station that they televised their healing psychic powers with. Big nice. air quotes, obviously. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> so they also encouraged their followers to cut all contact with their families. Like, when I'm saying it's a cult, it's like, it's pretty obviously a cult. But and this, this is the Aganshu cult? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And... 1981, Chizuo began the central training ritual of a Ganshu, which is a practice of meditating for 40 minutes every day for a thousand days, which is over two and a half years. And like, that's fine. You know, that's pretty minimal, harmless in the big picture. But he wasn't happy. He wasn't happy with this ritual. He didn't pursue, pursue a Ganshu. But having followed them and having seen what they did and what they asked of their followers... Chizuo now had the elements of fantasy and fundamentalism that he knew he wanted to weave into his own. It wasn't going to be a cult yet, perhaps, but into his own cult. He did want the mm -hmm. same power of a cult. In 1984, Chizuo Matsumoto began a new company called Om Inc., named after the Hindu mantra Om, the O-H-M, you know, which incorporates... The ultimate truth of the universe, that ohm that comes from your chest and you meditate on. His first enterprise of Ohm Inc. was <laughs> the Ohm Association of Mountain Wizards. <laughs> you fucking nerd. <laughs> this was a single room yoga studio that also sold fake health drinks. Not pharmacy. Some... So... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we gotta have some kind of grift in here. <laughs> Nice. The mountain wizards. Love love it. I can see, like, I could just see him, like, pulling up in a big white panel van with, like, a wizard and a dragon painted on the side of it. Like, that's the vibe that I'm getting from this name. Oh, my God. I love like, it. Like, and he's selling health drinks out of the back of it. Like, that's that's what I'm picking up right now. If only it was as, like, cute and innocuous as that. <laughs> if, if only. We wouldn't be here, though. <laughs> In 1986, Chizuo still didn't have the influence that he wanted over people, and he knew that he needed more legitimacy. He traveled to the Himalayas to fast and meditate and go on different religious retreats. And to his followers, which weren't very many at this point, but, you know, maybe a couple dozen, he said he was pursuing enlightenment. And miraculously, upon his return to Japan, he was able to tell them that he had achieved enlightenment. Nice. And I'm not Box sure. checked. <laughs> I'm just not sure that any human ever actually has achieved Buddhist enlightenment, but I am positive that Chizuo Matsumoto did not. No. Did, did they believe him, you think? I think they did. I mean, at least uh. some. There's always those people who are like, I don't know. I don't know about this, but... Mm -hmm. I think some people definitely did. But I just don't think that somebody who has achieved enlightenment 
would turn to publications like Twilight Zone magazine to get faked photos of themselves levitating in order to trick people into following them as religious leaders. Is this something that he did? Yes! Yes, it absolutely <laughs> is. So the way he did this was he would sat he sat cross-legged and then tensed his thigh muscles so quickly that it propelled him into the air momentarily, just long mm. enough for a photographer to catch a photo of it. And it actually gained him followers because people thought he could levitate. Nice. Like, they thought he was actually achieving psychic and physical powers through yoga. Nice. So, he was able to expand the branches of the Ohm Association of Mountain Wizards across Japan, and this, as one would think, it mostly appealed to young students. Like, to me, it's very clearly the demographic he's going after. Yeah, definitely. Same demographic who would like the wizard and the dragon, I think, on the white-paneled band. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And buoyed by the success that he had found in 1986, he started telling followers that Armageddon would come at the end of the century and only a merciful, godly race would survive. And the leader of this race would emerge in Japan. Oh, let me guess who it is. (laughs) Let me guess. It's not going to be Chizuo Matsumoto, though, because he changed his name. To Shoko Asahara because it sounded cooler. Got it. Got it. So Shoko Asahara, he's going to be the leader of the godly race. And he took another pilgrimage in 1987 that gave him audience with the Dalai Lama in Tibet. And his retelling of this interaction gained him further legitimacy with his followers and in Japan and people who didn't know what actually happened. So according to Asahara, which is how I'll be referring to him now, the Dalai Lama told him that Buddhism was dying in Japan and that Asahara should spread Buddhism there because he had the mind of a Buddha. Mm, I I totally believe that the Dalai Lama said this. Right. And now... He did meet with the Dalai Lama because he had a photo of it and he actually made sure everyone knew he had a photo of it because he reprinted it in all of the books that Ohm Inc. published after this meeting. Of course he did. But according to the Dalai Lama himself, when he was asked, he never compared Asahara to the Buddha. And he actually recalled Asahara asking more questions about how to organize a religion than having any interest in Buddhism. And an aide to the Dalai Lama said that Asahara was, quote, nothing special. (laughs) (laughs) But Asahara thought he was, and that's the most important thing, right? That's, I mean, it'll get you somewhere. It'll get you somewhere, you know, but maybe not as far as he'd like. Yeah. Well, unfortunately. Not Dalai Lama endorsed. Right. Status. But. He was able to tell people that he was, and there was no internet for people to fact check it. So, like, sure, photos, I guess, happened. Yeah. Yeah. He had the pictures. So, of course. And I mean, why would somebody lie about that? Right. Yeah. So, so now he's comparing himself to the Buddha through the Dalai Lama. But he also that year traveled to Egypt. And after that trip, he started telling people that in a past life, he was the Egyptian architect Imhotep who designed the pyramids. 
Of course he was. Right. Well, because of course, like in a past life, you're always someone cool. You're always like. Yeah, you're never <laughs> an NPC. Like, <laughs> you're never an NPC if you're talking about who you were in a past life. Right. Like, you're always somebody like, I was Joan of Arc in a past life, or I was the architect of the Egyptian pyramids. Like, I was Stalin <laughs> and Lenin simultaneously. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right, so the first book that Asahara published through Ohm was Secrets of Developing Your Supernatural Powers. Very cool stuff. Yeah. And this claimed that it could teach readers how to see the future, read people's minds, make your wishes come true, x-ray vision, levitation, (laughs) trips to the fourth dimension, hear the voice of God and more. I mean, who wouldn't want this book? Like, <laughs> these are some some pretty big promises, though. Pretty big promises. Well, and yeah, the, the mountain wizards were totally down with this. This is, I mean, basically what they had signed up for in the first place. And one of the ways that Asahara was like, okay, this is how I'm going to do it for you, was he repurposed a yoga technique where a yogi and a student would make eye contact and chant in unison which sounds very uncomfortable to me very (laughs) (laughs) but asahara added another element to this by placing his hand on the student's head which allowed him to quote interject his divine energy into disciples Mm. so right yeah and mountain wizards actually testified to out-of-body experiences during this techniques they were able to recover mentally from car accidents maybe even physically from car accidents and they experienced a nine out of ten chance of winning mahjong games oh like well definitely worth it definitely worth some dude putting his hands all over my head while chanting if i can win mahjong I guess I admire that they're like, it's a 9 out of 10 thing. It's not 10 out of 10. It's not a 10 out of 10. Like, got to keep it based in – like, it, it gives it some more grip to reality. Because if you go the full 10 out of 10, like – Right. Like, you know, you still might lose a game here and there. Still might lose a game here and there. And you could achieve all of this for the low, low price of only $350 for – also hard to put his hand on your head and then stare deeply into your eyes. <sighs> Alternatively, the mountain wizards could take a three-day course for only $40. Mm-hmm. Not bad, but it's because he didn't feed them or anything. Like, he was still taking oh, it was just for everything the... they had. Yeah. Yeah. It's just for the experience, not the not a like three day retreat or anything. Right, definitely not a retreat. Okay. And then there was there were things you could do on your own. Asahara claimed that members could experience out of body experiences through sex or by abstaining from sex through unconventional masturbation practices, and not unconventional, in like I don't even know unconventional in like the way he described it was basically like. Don't, it was all very much directed at people with penises, but it was like, don't masturbate for like 60 days or like masturbate and don't orgasm for 60 days and then have sex with somebody in this very specific way. And I was like, that person is going to be very uncomfortable with you. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And And I'm sure that that achieved out of body experiences. (laughs) Like, no, that's just called an orgasm. (laughs) Yeah, that's just called an orgasm. (laughs) 
at that point. Like that's the post nut clarity. Right. Exactly. That's all that is. That's not an out of body experience. Like, but it probably feels like it after sixty days of like yeah. masturbating and not orgasming. Like, yeah, I don't know. But yeah. so, like Jim Jones. Asahara also took to sleeping with his followers and having multiple extramarital affairs. So he's well on his way to being the cult leader that I think deep down he wanted to be. And do we know roughly how many people were following him at this point in the game? Uh, Own grew to 1,500 members by the end of 1987. Okay. But so after Asahara returned from his trips in india and egypt and started telling people of these great things that he realized about himself things started to take on a more religious flavor the goal of om became quote to rescue people from their suffering and quote to lead the world to enlightenment and the leadings towards buddhism were perhaps not as overt before like they were kind of there but it was more like really focused on the yoga but now asahara had the personal goal of really putting himself out there as a religious leader. He's not just a yogi anymore. He's a religious leader. And at this point, he decides, okay, I need to rename the group. We're not going to be the Ohm Association of Mountain Wizards anymore. We're taking it a new direction. Now it's going to be knowledge of supreme truth, which in Japanese translates to Ohm Shinrikyo. Okay. Students were now told that monetary donations to Ohm could help them with their spiritual development. They also needed to buy all of the Ohm books, start recruiting people for meetings, handing out leaflets, and instead of Mr. Asahara or Sensei or Yogi, their leader demanded that he be called Guru. Oh, predictable. <laughs> right. And, you know, of course. I mean, did. at least it wasn't daddy or something. Like, oh my God. Which was <laughs> what they did at Jonestown, calling yeah. him dad. Yeah. Ugh. At least it wasn't that. So, like, I'll give him that. Yeah. I'll give him that. But But still. so, of course, he did lose a couple people, a few members with this transition. But he gained many, many more who were into the combination of Buddhism and psychic training and, you know, yoga, Zen teachings, and Hinduism. For the patron deity of Om, Asahara chose the Hindu god of yoga and the destroyer of worlds, Shiva. And this played into his prediction that Armageddon was approaching as well, which he meant in a very Christian sense. He came up with the idea of Armageddon rather than the Buddhist equivalent, which is called Mapo. He came up with this from a quick read of Revelations in the Bible and then... (laughs) And then a little bit of research into Nostradamus's 16th century predictions. He really did go full, I'm going to be a cult leader, though, like with the prosperity gospel, Mm -hmm. all of the paid reading that you have to have, making people go out and recruit new people, MLM style, and now with the Armageddon prophecy, like he is like in it to win it. Yeah. He is checking all the boxes. It's really hard to believe that he didn't want to be a cult leader from the outset like he kind of seems like that was his goal like once he found it he was like ah yes that is it this is what i want (laughs) yeah this is this is my calling this is my calling in may of 1987 he started to get more specific about his predictions with armageddon Asahara said that Japan would rearm itself in 1992 and that nuclear war would break out between 1999 and 2003 
followers, therefore, only had 15 years to prepare. But nuclear annihilation of the world, and more importantly, the students of Om Shinrikyo, could be avoided if they franchised. Mm. So, (laughs) Shoko Asahara claimed that if there was a branch of Om in every country run by its own Buddha, World War III could totally be averted. Makes total sense, right? (laughs) Yeah, it makes total sense. Like, I mean, that's how you avoid nuclear annihilation. Like, if we just get a bunch of franchises up in this bitch, like... (laughs) You get an home. You get an home. It'll be like a Starbucks. We'll have one on every corner. Right. <laughs> Weirdly, though, there also seemed to be a loophole for just his followers who might be able to survive. He had a very specific timeline that described how Japan's friction with the U.S. would cause shit to start to turn in 1990. And then by November of 2003, he was very specific. The world would enter into a nuclear war. But... From the rubble of this war would emerge a race of superhumans, which would be Asahara's followers. And according to Shoko Asahara, thermonuclear warfare is not a big problem for one who has attained enlightenment. So mm. franchising, reach enlightenment. You're, you'll be gravy. You're safe. Yeah, <laughs> you're safe from all nuclear weapons. No big de- Like, he just really said NBD. No big deal. <laughs> right. Like, no big deal. <laughs> And it wasn't just about being happy now or in future lives, which you would think played into the theology because of Hinduism and the Buddhism. Mm -hmm. But now it's about surviving a radioactive hellscape after nuclear annihilation. And Asahara was able to cash in on that promise. Mm. And so now we get into the initiations. And the first big one is the blood initiation. Asahara had his blood drawn, and then a little bit was given to devotees who had shelled out the $7,000 to attend one initiation. And each glass handed to the followers had three or four spoonfuls of blood, along with an anticoagulant of some kind. And they were instructed to drink it so that they could absorb some of Asahara's magical properties. He is very much saying he is a deity. Yeah. How how kind of him to share his blood with us. Like, <laughs> how kind. Yeah. And this was just one of about 20 initiation rituals that followers could pay for. And I can't even say it's the most disgusting. Like, we've talked about drinking blood. It's not great. I don't recommend it. You can get a lot of, like bloodborne pathogens that way but this isn't even like the worst thing that shoko asahara did again i do not think he was a charismatic person at all i don't understand how he got people to do these things followers could buy remedies that had fewer pharmacological properties than the tangerine pills and alcohol he'd already been arrested for (laughs) seriously ohm sold asahara's beard clippings for 375 dollars per half inch Oh, my God. He sold his dirty bath water for $800 per quart and called it nectar water. Nice. And in his book, Declaring Myself the Christ. (laughs) Not subtle or humble at all. (laughs) Asahara would say of this bath water that, quote, Jesus changed water to wine. 
I changed ordinary water to water that emits light. Oh my god! <laughs> and the amazing thing is that all of this seemed to work. All of this was very profitable I, for him. I know, like, but who? Like, I want to know who's like paying seven thousand dollars to go drink blood and get dirty bath water that they have to pay even more money for. Like, I. Yeah, I don't. Know. I just. Yeah, like I'm having a hard like it's hard to believe like that this worked. Like it's honestly hard to believe. Like Yeah. So something was working. Something was working because by the fall of nineteen eighty eight there was an Om Shinrikyo branch in Manhattan. Oh wow. Yeah. He's coming stateside. Now, part of the success could be attributed to the fact that they were attracting certain people. And I mean, I think you have to figure they're attracting certain people. <laughs> Anyone who showed interest in joining was targeted. Like, if anybody was like, oh, I don't know, kind of, yeah, they were like, yes, we want you, we need you, you're perfect. They were actually told that they already had psychic potential that they could get mm. help ta- tapping into, right? So, for instance, one woman said that she'd seen her friend's shadow blur, and then later the okay. friend died. So, I don't know what that's supposed to mean. This is just an experience she had, and the recruiter she was talking to told her, you were a trainee in a previous life. You are innately at a higher level. If you train yourself hard and own, your superpower will increase. Of course it will. You just got to tap into it. Now that'll be $7,000, please. You just got to drink some blood and have some And give us all your money. Yeah. Yeah. Give us all your money and then everything will be fine. Yeah. And you'll Superpowers survive. unlocked. Yeah. And you'll survive nuclear war. It's going to be great. So more and more people joined, paid for courses. And in 1988, the total number of members was around 3,000. He's not dragging his feet. Like, <laughs> no, he is like, he has a goal. He has a goal yeah. in mind. Om Shinrikyo's headquarters in Japan were expanded into a compound in Fujinomiya at the foot of Mount Fuji. Followers who chose to live at the compound were called monks and nuns and had similar vows of poverty to their Christian counterparts that required them to relinquish all earthly belongings to Om, including cash savings, securities, real estate, jewelry, phone cards, because there's no cell phones yet, and Mm. even postage stamps. Like, they were taking everything Everything. from people. They were also strongly encouraged, once again, to cut off all ties with people outside of Ohm, especially if those people were not supportive of their involvement with the organization. And, like, I get if you have history with people who aren't super supportive of the things you like to do, but if somebody is, like, telling you you need to relocate where you live and give them all your stuff... Maybe yeah. listen to the people who are like, oh, I don't think that's a good idea. Yeah, it's a big red flag. And like, especially the part of like, oh, yeah, and you can't talk to any of the naysayers, like any of the people who are giving you some like shred of doubt about it. Like, yeah. red flags. Run away. Yeah. Run away. So Asahara was making bank. He had the people who were moving into the compound and giving him everything, and then there were the people who were just staying for a little while, because they would pay $2,000 for a week-long workshop, and they would get nothing in return. Like, we mentioned earlier with the workshops, you know, the three-day course type thing, that they weren't given anything, but they were actually staying 
in the compound where people were living and they would have to sleep on the floor. They'd only be allowed three hours of sleep a night and they'd be restricted to single meals of boiled vegetables per day. That's it. That's all they're getting. And this is because the members of Ocean Rikia were vegetarian and opposed to killing animals. So that's something to keep in mind for later. But I don't know. I've also heard people interpret that, like, cults do the plant-based thing because it reduces calories and you can't think and process mm. anymore. And that might have something to do with it. But I think that... Maybe a little column A, a little column B. A little of that. And, I mean, they also are coming, you know... They're at least telling people that it's a flavor of Buddhism, which mm -hmm. is a vegetarian, you know, belief system. So, again, yeah, column A, column B. But in 1989, to avoid being taxed on all of this money that is just being raked in, Ohm filed for religious status under Japan's religious corporation law. But this posed some problems for Ohm when Japan began to investigate them to see what kind of religion they were. What kind of things turned up? Well, for one, kids weren't supposed to be able to join Ohm without parental consent. But they did, and Ohm knew about it and then tried to hide that they knew about it. By 1990, 15% of the monks and nuns that lived full-time at the compound were minors. And in Japan, that means that it's anybody under 20 years old. Okay. And when parents of these kids came or they called looking for their children, they would be denied access or they'd be sent away. They'd be told they're not here right now. And every time they call, they're not here right now. Parents had already been drawing attention to this issue with the government, and it made Om Shinrikyo non-compliant with one of the requirements to be recognized as a religious organization, which was that followers must be able to freely come and go as they please, which seems reasonable, because if you can't leave, Very it's reasonable. a <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's definitely, definitely a sign you're in a cult. Yeah. But rather than doing anything about Ohm, the Tokyo City Hall ignored their application and also ignored the parents. So the Tokyo City Hall is just doing nothing. They're like, nothing. we won't make yeah. you a religion, but we're also not really going to investigate you. And they just hoped that it would fizzle out like cults sometimes do, I, I guess. Like, how many cults are you dealing with that you're like, ah, it'll just... And it'll just... It'll be another one in the books that right. goes to the wayside. But it's like, he's already got a pretty good... It's like, he's got a substantial amount of people. Like, 3,000 yeah. people is is a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> like, that he's responsible for at this point. Right. And, like, I don't know. It's one thing to have, like, your adult friends join a cult that you're like, oh, that's not great. And it's also not great to have your kid be a part of this mm -hmm. cult, even if they're, like, 20 or so, which would be an adult here. Like, they're starting to, like, try to test out freedom. Like, it's not great. But from what the parents could tell... It wasn't the worst. Like, you know, having them join a compound for people who want to gain psychic power through yoga, it's not a parent's dream. Like, that's not what you want to tell people in the Christmas right. letter, you know? <laughs> right. But they were fairly well assured that Asahara was preaching nonviolence. You know, they were vegetarian. He was known to say things like, you should not kill, you should love all living beings. Nonviolence means loving each and every creature. His Behavior inside the commune, though, that was more akin to Jim Jones in the closed-door meetings of the People's Temple. Mm. Asahara and his aides would 
beat followers for the most minor of infractions. Mm. They would justify themselves by saying that they were helping them with karma disposal so that their failures wouldn't hold them back in the next life. And this is something that he really latched on to was this like fucked up bastardization of karma because it's more complex than that. You know, like I'm sure that there's Americans who don't quite grasp that (laughs) and they believe the kind of karma that is kind of shown in like my name is earl and shit like that where it's like do good things good things happen but that is not like by and large how karma is believed to work and what om shinrikyo said was that eating good food and bathing daily that accrued bad karma Oh, And good karma could be gained by enduring pain or buying Asahara's books, which <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they were painful to endure themselves, but <laughs> sure, <laughs> you know, sure. you you could also build up good karma by donating to Om Shinrikyo, but only to Om. If you donated to welfare groups or schools, that didn't help with your karma. I see a theme here. <laughs> <laughs> and the followers who made really grievous errors were basically tortured they were locked inside a small room that only contained a television and a portable toilet the television was used to broadcast asahara speaking for 24 hours at max volume children as young as 10 were forced to stay in this room for days at a time as punishment as well as adults that's frightening yeah and again I don't know. It just feels like Jim Jones wrote the playbook and Choka Asahara is like, check, check, check. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Because it sounds like the White Knights a lot. Like. Yeah. Yeah. With the with the radio, like, just listen to me constantly, like, Mm -hmm. because that's going to because that's going to help. Like, what is that going to accomplish? You know what I mean? Like, did you think that would help? It's not going to help. It's not going to (laughs) help. Like, and just maybe make people more afraid, which I'm sure is partly some of the goal. Right, you know, lead by but... fear, yeah. Mm-hmm. So despite all of this, despite all of this torture and the drama with the minors and everything that's going on, Shoka Asahara was bound and determined to have Om Shinrikyo be recognized as a religious organization. He was not satisfied with the Tokyo City Hall, ignoring Ohm's application, so he sued the governor for delaying an administrative decision and brought 200 followers with him to stage a protest outside the Tokyo Metropolitan Building. And rather than deal with a lawsuit, the government caved and officially recognized Ohm Shinrikyo as a religion in August of 1989. All right. And for this next bit of juicy-ass weird information, I have to ask, Venus, have you ever heard the story of Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut? I have not. What's it about? It's a short story set in 2081, and the premise is that everyone is made equal by handicapping certain people. And the main character, Harrison Bergeron, is a 14-year-old. He's too smart. And so the way that the government has handicapped him to make them make him as smart as, you know, the... I mean, the point is essentially the dumbest person. Mm-hmm. Is that they 
put a radio in his head to keep him from being able to follow complex thought. So oh, it, God. it goes off at intervals and kind of shocks him. So he can't hold on to any thought for too long because he just has this shock to his brain. That sounds miserable. And I don't know if that was the same idea that Shoko Asahara or Hideo Murai, who was his lead scientist, had for their followers. But I can only presume that that is how their perfect salvation initiation caps worked. So basically, they were these caps, like swim caps, with, with electrodes that sent six volt shocks directly into a follower's head. Oh, and, God. And the people at Ohm claimed it worked as a type of lie detector that measured the brain waves of the wearer and would send electronic impulses to your brain and synchronize your brain waves with those of the master. And by doing so, your mind will come to know the blissful meditative state that the master himself feels every second. No, I'm going to feel a fucking shock on my head. <laughs> Like, that does not sound like bliss. It's just another example of how these fucking nerds, because it hasn't become super obvious yet, but Om Shinrikyo attracts science nerds and, like, science fiction nerds, that's the people they want. So these fucking nerds are into science, but they don't know how it works because they claim that Asahara was tested and found to only have brain waves that were below 0.05 hertz. Which means he's brain dead. And they boasted oh about god. this. Oh my god. <laughs> and brain dead or not, he made serious fucking money with these caps. While full-time members were generously given their own PSI cap for free. They were rented to other members for $7,000 a month. Or you could purchase one for $70,000. You, too, can get shocks to the head. <laughs> and even kids were forced to wear three-volt versions of the caps, and they'd be punished Aww. if they removed it. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. And one of the things I find the strangest about Ohm is that at first, you know, it attracted the people who were interested in weird Buddhism, of which there was a lot to try in Japan, or, like, weird yoga or wanting superpowers. But... The people who came in droves after they were recognized as a religion in August of 1989 and essentially helped drive Ohm on its path of destruction were these young computer nerds and scientists. And I think that this is because nerds will be nerds, and if any any cult was going to attract these kind of people, it was Ohm Shinrikyo. Like, they were just, they were super into, like, Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, and, like, they attracted young people because they had their own manga about the cult, and they had an anime oh, okay. about the cult. Okay. And I went and found it, and it's very weird. It's basically just, like, praising Shoko Asahara. It doesn't say anything about okay. what they believe. It's just, like, how great Shoko Asahara is. And I think he can oh. fly in the anime. <laughs> it's very weird. But, so some of these young recruits included Fumihiro Jyoyu, who was a 26-year-old who studied AI and worked for the National Space Development Agency of Japan, but only for two weeks. And then he resigned and he cited an incompatibility of his work with his interests in yoga. 
And then there was the astrophysicist Hideo Murai, who I mentioned earlier, became the chief mm-hmm. scientist at Ohm. And he helped Asahara orchestrate his Armageddon. And he also quit his job early on to find fulfillment through Ohm Shinrikyo. So it's like these people that like seem Would like have been they, successful. Yeah, they seem like they know what they're doing. And then they're like, oh, this weird science fiction yoga shit. That's my jam. I'm going to join that. And it's like, but you were doing so well. What happened? <laughs> 21-year-old Suji Taguchi quit his job at an electronics factory and joined Ohm Shinrikyo in 1988. He made several like-minded friends in Ohm, including a 25-year-old whose name is unknown, but who decided sometime in 1988 that he wanted to leave. And Taguchi was sad, but Asahara was furious because, like Jim Jones, you can't even have single people leaving. If somebody comes in, they Mm -hmm. have to stay in. Mm Mm-hmm. Asahara said his follower was confused and mentally unstable and to cure the fire in his head that was causing him to question his place, Asahara decided to cure him by repeatedly dunking his head in ice-cold water until he succumbed to hypothermia and died. Oh, God. They killed this fucking guy. The murder was covered up, the body was cremated, and even now I think the only people who know this man's identity are the members of Om Shinrikyo, including Taguchi, who was horrified and decided he also needed to get the fuck out. But Asahara found out that he was leaving, and in 1989, it took a couple months to organize this, but Asahara, he finally came to his followers and figured out how he wanted to take care of people who knew too much that it would damage the cult. Defect. Right, yeah. right. And so he he introduced the idea of POA to his followers, which is the taking of a soul to a higher plane. And so it's mm. another kind of, you know, related to that fucking A nice idea way of, of putting, yeah, well, in a really, yeah, nice way of putting, we'll just kill him. Right. Because that's what he's take saying. take care of him. That's, yeah, that's what he's saying. Like, so he's saying that if you kill somebody, if they're innocent, they'll go to heaven and guilty people will go to hell. But in either case, it would be a divine act that would assure the killer ascension to nirvana. So he's saying no matter what, you guys are fine because you're helping. It's a divine act. Okay. And when he first presented this, it was in reference to Taguchi. And so it was immediately understood what he meant. This is how we're going to take care of the guy who knows too much and could potentially hurt Om Shinriki as an organization. So. A couple followers murdered him. He was being held in the compound. They had him. They murdered him. They put his body in a metal drum, and they set it on fire. And when his body had been completely burnt down beyond recognition, his ashes were scattered somewhere near the Mount Fuji compound. And so did he, did this murder take place in front of more people in the compound compared to the first defector? Like, were more people aware of it? Or was it kind of kept under wraps? I think it was kept under wraps. He was kept in the compound. And I think, I mean, it was one of those things, I think, where, like, he was just being punished. And maybe nobody knew why. And it was just like, well, Asahara, you know, the master will deal with it. Yeah, the master will do what the master will do. Yeah. So six months later, Taguchi's death was still not being investigated. Nobody knew about it, except for those involved and the high-ranking members of Ohm who had been informed about it. But most members didn't know he was dead, and most members probably didn't know 
the circumstances around even the first death, you know? So it was all very secretive. People left the cult all the time, or, you know, they tried to leave the cult, or they were pressed by their parents to leave. But these people, they knew they were as good as dead. Like, even if they weren't aware that a murder actually had been committed by the cult, they knew they'd be hounded by Shoka Asahara. He had a stranglehold over membership. And by October 1989, there were 23 families who were asking for the help of a single attorney who was the only one who was willing to launch a campaign against Om Shimurikyo mm. for harboring minors at first. Yeah, because the city wasn't doing anything about it. No, and everybody's afraid because, oh, it's a religious organization. We don't really want to touch it. And he's like, no, they have minors, and there's 23 people who their family wants me to help them. Like, this is not okay. So this guy, he was 33-year-old Tsutsumi Sakamoto. He formed the Society of Om Shinrikyo Victims, primarily to fight the legal battles on behalf of these families, but he was also approached by a former member who paid $7,000 for a blood initiation only to find it hadn't worked and he'd been grifted out of his money. I didn't get my superpowers. <laughs> so... Sakamoto planned to help this man sue Ohm Shinrikyo to get his money back. He met with Ohm's attorney on Halloween 1989, and the meeting did not go well. And the cult's attorneys threatened that if Sakamoto didn't back off, the individual cult members would countersue their own member, their own family members. And, you know, then they invoked their freedom of religion and all of the stuff that they're constantly throwing out. Mm -hmm. You can't touch us. Two days later, on November 2nd, Asahara had a meeting with the attorneys and expressed the fear and the anger that Sakamoto was going to destroy Om Shinrikyo. He then said, We must send Counselor Sakamoto's soul away by any means. Hmm. Yeah, right? <laughs> and, and no one really wanted to interpret what that could mean this time. Like... Dealing with a cult member was one thing, but dealing with an attorney that has 23 right. families coming after them, nobody was going to be like, okay, I got you, master. So yeah. Asahara further explained, get Sakamoto into a car and inject him. And he also said that the cult's physician had a drug that could kill a man in five minutes flat. It's going to be super easy. But instead of Sakamoto getting into a car and getting injected... Six members of Om Shinrikyo broke into his house in Yokohama at 3 a.m. when he, his wife, and his 14-month-old child were asleep. Oh. This change had been made because the members of Om had wanted to act quickly but had forgotten that November 3rd is a national holiday, Culture Day, in Japan. So they waited outside his office to kidnap him, but he never showed. <laughs> Rookie move. Right. Asahara knew that the change of plans would mean that Sakamoto's entire family would be killed, but he didn't care. And it's the same thing. It's like, well, if they're innocent, they'll go to heaven. It'll be fine. Yeah. The cult members climbed the stairs to the Sakamoto's apartment armed with rope, hammers, and a club and seven syringes of potassium chloride. Is that a lot? Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. a lot. It's okay. basically like seven syringes of, like, salt water. Okay. Yeah. So Tsutsumi, his wife Satoko, and their son Tatsuhiko were beaten and strangled and wrapped into futons and hauled back to the Mount Fuji compound. From there, Asahara ordered that the bodies be disposed of somewhere where they would never be found. 
and their clothes were burnt, and their teeth were removed to prevent identification of their corpses. And the cult members spent three days looking for remote areas all around Japan to jump, dump the bodies in the metal drums. The Sakamoto's would be reported as missing, but their remains would not be sought out or found until after the Sarin attacks in 1995. This would be despite the fact that the cult's physician, who was one of the killers, dropped his Om Shinrikyo badge in the Sakamoto's apartment, and it should have been a fucking clear clue as to what happened, but the police didn't pursue it. Oh my god. Bumbling cops everywhere. They're not just in America, apparently. Nope. nope. So how does the potassium chloride injections, like, how does that affect the body? Potassium chloride is one of the salts of potassium, so it is like sodium chloride. And, you know, potassium's not often found on its own. And then, like sodium chloride, it can be used as a dietary supplement, so it would have been fairly easy for them to get. It can also be used to treat cardiac dysrhythmias. Because, as we mentioned in the sodium chloride episode and the water episode, potassium is one of the main electrolytes we need in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And there's also electrolyte channels in the body that control various biological functions. And having too much or too little can have horrible, dire impacts. So a surplus of potassium in the body can result in excess potassium in the blood, which is called hyperkalemia. An increase of extracellular potassium in the body of 1% over the whole body increases the plasma potassium concentration by 70%. Oh, shit. Yeah, we are very, very, very sensitive to potassium. Like, you can't fuck around with our electrolytes. And once you have hyperkalemia, it can lead to cardiac arrest, small bowel ulceration, muscle weakness, nausea, vomiting, and death from renal failure. Damn. Yeah, not a good time. Not a good time. Yeah. And highly effective, it sounds like. Easy enough to get the... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Easy enough to do. So following the murders, Asahara had the killers meet with him and the cult lawyer to be read the Japanese penal code for murder, which is, a person who kills another shall be punished by the death penalty or imprisonment with work for life or for a definite term of not less than five years. Sakamoto's name wasn't mentioned, but it was understood that if anyone tried to take down Om Shinrikyo with this information, they would go down with the ship. In February of 1990, Japan held elections for parliament and Asahara ran for a seat for the 4th District of Tokyo, and 25 other members of Om ran for different positions. Much like the class presidential elections of his childhood, Asahara lost the election. As did the rest of the Ohm candidates. And Shoko... Not even one? Not no. even one? No, nobody won. And Shoko could not figure out why. He was still just as confused as he had been as a kid. In fact, this is the best Why part. don't they like me? <laughs> so for the district he ran in, he only received 1,783 votes. But that was fewer than the number of Om Shinrikyo followers living in that district. So not even his own followers voted for him. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And he spent $7 million on the campaign. And then during the campaign, there were some shenanigans and a cult member had stolen $1.5 million and then fled with it. Oh, shit. And I don't know how this member wasn't like, 
hunted down or whatever since, you know, Asahara has eyes everywhere. But, like, yeah, this campaign did not go yeah. well for him. No. As a result, he decided to double down on his Armageddon predictions. He was like, I'm going back to what I'm good at. And he insisted <laughs> that the end of the world would still happen sometime between now 1999 and 2001. He's closing the window. And he said that there is proof that this was going to happen because of the conflict in the Middle East, the passage of Halley's Comet, an increase of UFO sightings, the democratization of the Soviet Union, and the reunification of Germany. This oh, is all... yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, the world's going to end. Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> yeah. Like This is when it starts to get a little darker. I mean, there's already been murder and stuff, but it gets worse because it always gets worse. This is when Asahara started attempting to build an army within Aum Shinrikyo. Part of his plan included impregnating female members of Aum and oh, having no. them raise children specifically to be suicide bombers so oh, they would have no. no ideologies holding them back and if they were apprehended, they could be tried as juveniles. That is wild. It's one of the dumbest ideas I've ever fucking heard in my yeah, life. Yeah, that's wild. Like, and, like, even if he was stupid or batshit, he was still amassing a dangerous amount of power, at least inside Aum Shinrikyo. He'd established several ministries within the cult, but the largest, which was led by Seichi Endo, was the Ministry of Science and Technology, which had 250 members alone. The main goal of this ministry was developing unconventional arms, and later in 1990, Endo began attempting to produce weapons for germ warfare. A microbiology lab was established in one of the prefab buildings on the Mount Fuji compound in which they were culturing Clostridium botulinum. Hey, I yeah. <laughs> yeah. And because botulinum toxin is so dangerous, they were attempting to create an antitoxin using horse serum at a different location and Mount Asso, where they had set up a stable just for this purpose. This was unnecessary because the first attempts to test their strains on lab rats was ineffective. So you like you don't need to go through this whole thing of like Getting a stable and getting horses, like, yeah. Step one, if it's not working on the rats, it's probably not going to work on the horses. Right, right. Just a guess. And Endo suspected that it wasn't working because they didn't have the proper equipment, which, like, yeah, you fucking think you're working in a microbiology lab in a prefabricated building in a cult compound. like. But he fixed up his makeshift lab. And he persisted, and by April of 1990, he believed he had a culture that Unk could use to bring about Armageddon with botulinum toxin. And were any of the other lab members or the other members aware that Armageddon wasn't just going to come about as prophesized, but that Asahar was attempting to plan it at this point? I think that they were, like, willing to believe it could come about by any means possible. You know, like, the goo perpetrating it whatever they were already buying into asahara's version of karma and the idea of poaing people and all of that and it's kind of like jonestown where like people bought into what om was doing in different ways and i think different people were willing to believe in asahara's causes for different reasons and some of the scientists that he'd recruited were telling him about weapons he didn't know about and assuring asahara that like any modern Armageddon, any 
any major world conflict, even if it was one that like he he saw and didn't perpetrate, it would be completely devastating. And so like everybody was really on the same page with it. It was they okay. didn't care how it was going to start. They didn't. Okay. So the target who was chosen for the botulinum attack that Endo said they were prepared for was the Japanese parliament. And the method for administration was inspired by none other than the United States. Hmm. It is known that the U.S. military and the CIA was experimenting with biological pathogens on their own citizens, specifically those in the Bay Area and Florida in the late 1940s through the 1960s during MKUltra, right? But apparently there was a specific incident that I haven't confirmed, but I don't have any difficulty believing this happened. And that involved the spread of bacteria via the exhaust pipe of a car throughout New York City. It is from this that Ohm drew inspiration for their attack on the Japanese parliament, which in Japanese is called the Diet. Members of Ohm Shinrikyo customized a car with a device to spray a solution of botulinum toxin and then drove it around the area surrounding the Diet. And while this was going on, Shoko Asahara was getting, giving talks to his followers offshore on Okinawan Island, telling them about how he, you know, how the botulinum toxin was going to bring Tokyo to his knees with gastrointestinal distress and paralysis, mm. and, like, it's going to be great, right? It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> but keen listeners of this podcast <laughs> will not be surprised to learn that this was not the case. Tokyo was not brought to its knees. Because botulinum toxin does not spread well, and that is why efforts to use it for biological warfare have largely been abandoned. The only thing right, that it needs to be in a closed space. Yeah, yeah. Well, it it needs to not just be in a closed space, but like contained. Vaporizing it just doesn't do very much. Like you really have to like get it ingested in, orally or in a in a wound. In a wound. Yeah. Right. So. The only thing that was successful about this operation was the retreat to the Okinawan island that Osahara was at because it brought in $2 million from amenities, which were clearly not many because the guests camped on the island while Osahara stayed in a hotel. They paid for blood initiations and electrode caps and all that shit. The botulinum toxin being spread? Complete failure. In March of 1992... Shoka Asahara met with Russian authorities for the first time to begin recruiting in Russia. He also put on a performance at the largest covered arena in Russia, where he showed a video of himself as Christ crucified oh to 19,000 potential new members. And oh then after this, as a part of their recruitment efforts, they paid a radio station 700 thousand dollars a year to improve you know their their functions and then with those improvements broadcast ohm teachings oh joy within the first year the number of members in russia outnumbered the number of members in ohm shinrikyo in japan oh wow <laughs> so he he really was laying ground here yeah he really was this was a good investment this was a good investment on top of that, he also had the hookups he needed with, you know, former Soviet Union scientist recruits to implement chemical and biological warfare agents. But the Ohm Shinrikyo war machine didn't stop there. Asahara bought the failing 
Okamura Iron Works for less than $2 million in 1993 and used the factory primarily for the production of AK-74s, which was the standard-issue automatic rifle for the Russian army. So now we have a cult with membership in the thousands, tens of thousands, really, an egomaniac who is foretelling the end of the world and his paranoid of authorities coming for him, children being held against their will in the cult, being born into it. We have the charismatic leader sleeping with the female members of the cult and trying to impregnate them to make some sort of child army. We have huge amounts of money being thrown around and people giving everything they have to the cult with ties to Russia and firearms. So what are we missing in this perfect cocktail recipe that we learned from Jonestown? What do you think it is? Drugs. Drugs. <laughs> Psychoactive drugs. Om Shinrikyo had a nine-bed hospital in Tokyo. Again, much like Jonestown having their hospitals. Like, it makes me wonder if he, like, read about Jim Jones or something. I have no idea. He. It seems like he followed a blueprint almost. Yeah. Like, Especially yeah. just coming off of the Jonestown episode a couple back, like mm-hmm. it's, it really does seem like he followed a blueprint. Yeah. So they had their own hospital, and in 1993, the the hospital and the private physicians and nurses in Ohm, who weren't necessarily working at the Ohm hospital, they opened their pharmacies to Shoko Asahara to begin experimenting using drugs in their initiation rituals. One of the first drugs Asahara chose was sodium thiopental which we learned a little bit about in the Russian Poisons episode because it was a candidate for truth serum. Initiates being given thiopental were usually those unsure about joining the cult in the first place, and they had to sign a release that said, I will commit myself to any treatment by Guru Asahara if I go into a coma for reasons such as an accident. Uh, not would... exactly. Like, that's like a turn and run away. Like, yeah, for right. real. Like, I'm not joining your cult. I'm running away and telling as many people as I can that you're fucking crazy. Yeah. But people signed it. And then if they signed it and agreed to do the ritual, they were made to wear a diaper, which, like, uh, a... <sighs> there's just safety first. I... <laughs> <laughs> I just don't understand how you can, like, overlook so many red flags yeah like like okay now it's time for the diaper like um what excuse (laughs) Excuse me me? (laughs) yeah and then while the person was meditating or tripping balls or whatever was happening during this initiation they were given subliminal suggestions such as join the priesthood or convert your spouse and despite the literal medical professionals in Ohm being a part of this, which, you know, if I knew about that in the real world, not my first choice for a doctor. The right. so- their source book for more, most of the drugs they chose to experiment with was a book called Recreational Drugs by, I'm not even joking, Professor Buzz. I mean, the timely, honored, and most fucking knowledgeable <laughs> professor of all time, Professor Buzz. I have to believe this book was self-published. Oh, it has to be. It has to be. And it didn't just discuss, like, Arrowhead-style descriptions of dosages and trips. It explained how to manufacture drugs like PCP, meth, and LSD. And they really liked LSD. Like, more so later, but as soon as they got this, they were like, yeah. So now they're all fucked up on LSD that they're making. They're wearing electro caps that prevent coherent thought. 
Asahara is crazy with power, and his followers are charged with helping to bring about the end of the world so that their karma can be improved. I don't know, whatever else it is that they believe in their sleep-deprived, malnourished, paranoid states. Right. They failed their attack on the Diet, but that's fine. They've regrouped, and now there's a major social and political event that they can ruin. And that is the Imperial Wedding of the Crown Prince. Okay. So Asahara's first idea for this wedding shows just how much of a nerd he and everyone else in Om Shinrikyo was. As I said, they were super fans of Asimov's foundations. They were into anime, manga. Those are fine. Like, it's fine to be into those things. But they had their own, right? And Asahara seemed to believe his own bullshit about, like, the superpowers that were depicted in this anime. Because his original plans for crashing this wedding involved creating a laser that could be used <laughs> to destroy the imperial palace and vaporize the emperor. Laser beams. <laughs> Endo, Ohm's chief scientist, he managed to talk him out of this idea. He was like, look, that's going to like take months to put together. We don't have that time. <laughs> we don't have time for this giant death laser. And look, I've already got a simpler solution. I've worked out all these kinks with the botulinum toxin, and this time it's definitely going to work. So Asahara trusted him to the point that he'd even planned to hold a press conference after the attack, and he was going to blame the resulting illnesses from botulinum on the u.s military he had this whole like intricate plan plan yeah (laughs) so endo and his people rigged up a spraying device to a car and then attached it to a container of the liquid botulinum toxin and then asahara and a handful of followers hopped in the car and drove around tokyo with a sprayer attached to it while everyone was like out on the town for the marriage procession it had to look very weird yeah. halfway through this drive though asahara got scared that the toxin was leaking into the car where he was so he got out and he made the others carry on but of course <laughs> nothing happened but endo wasn't going to give up with his bioweapons He had purchased a vial of bacillus anthracis from a commercial supplier and cultivated it into a liquid solution. This bacterium is highly infectious and persistent and is known for rapidly wiping out sheep and cattle and is actually suspected to be the pathogen behind the fifth plague of Egypt, which wiped out all the livestock of the Egyptians but spared that of the Israelites because dramatics. Mm-hmm. It can't spread from human to human, but it is a zoonotic disease which can spread from animals to people and presents with coal-black skin lesions first identified by the Greeks as anthracus and is today recognized as anthrax. Anthrax spores are unlike botulinum toxins. They are durable and persistent and are actually spread quite well on the wind. In the 1940s, the British released anthrax spores on Grunyard Island to test them as possible biological weapons against the Nazis. Predictably, all the sheep on the island died, but the presence of the spores which remained in the soil rendered the island uninhabitable for 45 years until the British government came through and decontaminated the soil with seawater and formaldehyde. Oh, shit. 
the U.S. Office of Technology Assessment estimated at one point that a plane carrying 220 pounds of anthrax and releasing the colorless, odorless spores crop duster style over Washington, D.C. could have the same effect as if a hydrogen bomb was dropped. Holy shit. Yeah, it is not fucking fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. So, on July 1st, 1993, Ohm committed their first act of biological terrorism with the spores. They intended to kill thousands of people by spraying the liquid slurry from a sprayer mounted on the eight-story building Ohm operated in Kaimeda, which is an area of eastern Tokyo. They suited up to protect themselves against the spores and then poured in the solution of anthrax to this. It was almost like a cloud machine, right? So it created steam, it rose, and then it settled over Tokyo. And they allowed this to go on for four days. Inhalation exposure to anthrax is the most dangerous form. Once inhaled, spores infect the macrophages in the body and then germinate into vegetative cells to start producing anthrax toxin in the body within three hours, which is then fed with the nutrients inside the body. Despite rapid germination, symptoms of anthrax are slow to develop after infection and can take anywhere from six days to six weeks to appear. Oh, damn. When they do manifest, anthrax symptoms can be easy to misdiagnose as a simple cold or the flu because it's got a sore throat, fever, muscle aches, and fatigue that develop further into shortness of breath, coughing up blood, nausea, septic shock, and meningitis, which can lead to death. Oh within one to two days of the onset of the first symptoms. Wow. That's a lot. It's a lot. It's it's fucked up. It would have been very, very, very hard to determine what had happened, and a lot of people would have died. During the airborne assault on Tokyo, birds died, pets sickened, and plants surrounding the Om Shinrikyo building wilted. The steam left stains wherever it settled, and area residents complained of an odor akin to burning flesh. Om Shinrikyo was questioned, but were hostile to investigators and explained the steam away as being soybean oil and Chanel Number no. 5 perfume used to purify <laughs> the whole building. So the police backed off and nothing happened. But literally, nothing else happened, which is why I spoke in the past tense earlier and said it would have been a big deal. Mm-hmm. People did get a little sick from the odor, but there were absolutely no cases of anthrax in Tokyo because the scientists in Om Shinrikyo were the kind of scientists who believed that water could be made holy with sound waves, Asimov's foundations was more science than fiction, and that the cure for suffering in the world was to add more. These bumbling rejects had cultivated the stern strain of Bacillus anthracis, which is a harmless form utilized in veterinary medicine for prophylaxis against anthrax. So is there a vaccine or something that combats anthrax? Yeah, yeah. And that's that's basically what they were using is the strain that you make a vaccine out of. Gotcha. So there is a vaccine that can prevent anthrax and it can be used for people who have already been exposed. It could... If treated before symptoms appear, antibiotics are very effective against anthrax. And there's also an antitoxin which can be administered after infection to prevent the toxins from acting upon the body. After symptoms begin to present, in the case of an actual anthrax attack, it can be much harder to treat. And it seems that even in modern-day scenarios, like the attacks on the Pentagon through the mail in 2001, 
Anthrax has about a 45% fatality rate when all the oh, treatment wow. options are still available. Huh. So, like, this could have been a seriously fucked up attack. Yeah. But they failed. But they blew Again. It. Yeah. Because they're bundling idiots. <laughs> now, in his eyes, C.H.A. Endo had now failed Om Shinrikyu three times in his attempts to use bioweapons, but he still wasn't quite willing to abandon them. It cannot be completely verified, but it is hypothesized that he obtained poisonous mushroom spores of some sort, cultures for Q fever, which is another favorite of the CIA, and the Ebola virus. On top of that, they were also researching different toxins using their connection in New York with access to the protein data bank from the Brookhaven National Laboratory, and were also collecting manuals from the CIA and other sources on wiretapping, explosives, kidnappings, and how-to manuals for building AK-47s, Uzis, and Berettas. Asahara was also interested in getting larger toys from connections in Russia, including military helicopters, tanks, and nuclear warheads. Money talks, but it's also hard to say how far this interest would have taken Ohm. The KGB didn't really seem to take the cult seriously once they landed on the radar, but they were also letting Ohm do whatever it wanted. Yeah, they weren't trying to stop them or <laughs> control them in any way. Right. Russia, as far as we know, also had experience with chemicals and toxins of interest to Asahara that could not be obtained elsewhere because it's fucking insane to keep those kinds of cultures and chemicals on hand. So, like, all of the people who you wouldn't want to be talking to each other were, but they weren't right. necessarily, like, they weren't making strides, necessarily. Like, they could, right. and that was the danger, but... They could have, yeah. Yeah. But before we get into all of that and Armageddon, there was another murder committed at the behest of Shoko Asahara that should not go unmentioned. In 1990, a man named Kotaro Uchida joined Ohm and began working as a pharmacist for them in Dr. Hayashi's Astral Hospital in Tokyo. Because that's where you want to go. Right. But by 1993, Uchida began to feel unsure about his devotion to Ohm Shinrikyo and their methods. For one thing, the patients in Ohm whom he was treating never actually seemed to improve and only seemed to worsen under the supervision of cult doctors. He had grown increasingly concerned that his friend Hideaki's mother in particular might actually die from Parkinson's if she wasn't able to get help outside of Ohm Shinrikyo. Hideaki Yasuda was a former member of Ohm who helped form a plan with Ochida to help the woman escape. Their attempts were thwarted by Shoko Asahara, who had the men apprehended and forced Yasuda to choose what would happen to them. One, you kill Ochida. Two, if you can't kill Ochida, you will be killed on the spot. Damn. Yasuda obviously didn't want to kill anyone, but then Asahara told him lies about Ochida raping his mother. And Yasuda may have believed these, or he may have just wanted to spare himself, which... Ochida actually seemed understanding about and allegedly apologized for bringing him into all of this. So mm. Ochida was tortured with mace and a plastic bag over his head to keep the mace in before Yasuda garroted him to death with the assistance of the head of Ohm's security. Mm. This is where the book The Cult at the End of the World introduces us to Asahara's incinerator on the Mount Fuji complex, which was nicknamed the Final Cleaner. Mm. He actually patented the design in 1992 under his birth name. He was so proud of this thing, 
but also protective of his of its existence, and he didn't want it directly linked to him and, and Om Shinrikyo. The incinerator could reach temperatures of over 2,700 degrees Fahrenheit by forcing air through a bed of red-hot sand and reducing a human being to a mere two pounds of ash within 30 minutes, which is oh, just, wow. it's fucking insane. Insane. Yeah. But even this monstrosity paled in comparison to the microwave. Oh, the refrigerator-sized microwave generator purchased by Ohm for $23,000 could be used industrially for the dehydration of instant foods and tea leaves, and this is what they claimed they purchased it for. Mm. What they actually did was connect the generator to six metal drums, which would themselves form an oven or a high-energy particle death beam, but those plans are still in the future. <laughs> And the body of Kotaro Ochida was sealed into one of these drums where it was cooked just like in a regular microwave. And this is gross, but if you think of like whatever you, whenever you cook something in the microwave and it becomes like malleable and wet and then dry and kind of sticks to the sides of the container, that's what happened to this human being. And the remains were chipped out and then dissolved in nitric acid and then flushed down the toilet unceremoniously. Wow. In the weeks following, attempts were made on Hideaki Yasuda, and he tried to get the police to help him, but the most they did was keep the cult at bay and away from him. But no one was arrested for the murder of Kotaro Uchida. Mm. And this didn't matter to Shoka Asahara, who was kind of too powerful to concern himself with single murders at this point, right? He's got his eyes on right. Armageddon. What does it matter? So... He needed to bring about the end of the world as he'd been predicting it, and that's what he was singularly focused on. Siichi Endo was the head scientist for Ohm, but Masami Suchia was the head of the Ministry of Chemistry within the cult. Beginning in March of 1993, Suchia began experimenting with gaseous chemical warfare agents in another of the prefab buildings in the Mount Fuji compounds, which was built with double walls and no windows to prevent the gases from escaping in the event that his very legit homemade fume hood failed. In April of 1993, Suchia made the executive decision for the cult that the gas which would do the most damage and had the best chance of igniting Armageddon would be a nerve agent created by the Nazis. Sarin gas. But that is a story for next time. Well, I can't wait to get into it. This has been a wild ride. This guy is crazy. He's absolutely crazy, and it just gets even crazier. So this episode was basically all of their, like, biochemical attempts, and next episode is all of their chemical attempts. And it all is right. fucked up. Well, I can't wait. <laughs> Me either, but everybody else will have to wait two weeks. So we'll see you guys <laughs> then. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Venus Dineko. Stay safe, and remember, the dose makes the poison. <laughs>